significant portion of my boyhood consisted of dressing up in military attire and single-handedly defeating the Nazis in my back garden. I love the history of World War II, and now I find myself living in London. So, when my wife Hannah asked me what I wanted to do for my birthday this year, the boy in me chose to go to the Imperial War Museum. I want to see the artifacts from the Second World War, and especially the war room with the giant map of Europe and the chess pieces that were moved around in strategy meetings between Churchill and his generals. As I have been thinking about this passage, which we're going to look at this morning, as well as my imminent trip to the war museum, it occurred to me that Paul is waging war. Acts chapter 18 tells us that Paul was in the city of Corinth for a full 18 months after Jesus appeared to him in a vision and said this, I have many in this city who are my people. But since leaving, there have been problems. And the main problem is that the Corinthians have closed their hearts to Paul and opened them in another direction. You can see that in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. Paul longs for them to be reconciled to Christ and to himself. One commentator wrote, The drama of the letter centers upon the threatened relationship of love that exists between the apostle and his church. There is a battle going on for the affections of these people. And we are, as it were, peering into Paul's war room and seeing his strategy to win them back. Now, it is quite possible that the other direction that they have opened their hearts toward is toward the false apostles. Now, the whole book has an underlying theme in which Paul has been waging a war on these agents of Satan. These men have crept in to lead God's people astray with a different gospel. There is good reason to believe that Paul is referring to these false teachers here in this passage, although I realize there is much debate, and it seems like every commentary I picked up had a bit of a different interpretation of precisely what it means to be yoked together and who specifically the unbelievers are. But I want to speak less about Paul's specific application in this passage, and I want to focus more on how Paul is fighting for the hearts of his friends. I want us to focus on his strategy to win them back. Now, in the passage before the one we are looking at this morning, we read that one way Paul appealed to the hearts of the Corinthians was by the way he lived his life, how his life commended the gospel. Now Paul moves to a different strategy, and we should take note. 
One of my favorite quotes about the Christian life was from a minister who taught here in London in the last century. He said this, The Christian life is both a battle and a banquet. The Christian life is both a battle and a banquet. There is a very real cosmic conflict waged on the battlefield of every heart, and it is a battle for the affections of God's people. If you are a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus, I hope you are aware of the strategies of Satan. He does not want you to feast on God's word. He does not want you to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He does not want you to be deeply satisfied in the Son of God who gave his own life for your soul. And he certainly does not want you to live the Christian life in community. Week in and week out for the rest of our lives, there is a fight for our affections. And I think we can learn from Paul in this passage how to magnify Christ and his gospel by seeing our place as God's people in the grand narrative of redemptive history. So Paul begins to lay out his strategy beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where he says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. The hearts of the Corinthians are open to that which opposes God. So Paul battles for their hearts by telling them of their new identity in Christ as God's new covenant dwelling place. But there are implications for this reality. And he uses this vivid Old Testament image to show them that those who bear the yoke of Christ cannot share it with someone going in the opposite direction. Now, in ancient times, and and still in some parts of the world today, beasts of burden uh, would be bound together uh, with a piece of wood called a yoke. And then uh, a heavy plow would be attached to the yoke, and the animals would pull the plow and perform the hard labor of breaking up the ground to get it ready for planting. By using this image of being yoked together, Paul is contrasting two identities. He wants to show them that there is an incompatibility between spiritual opposites. He is provoking their imagination. He wants them and he wants us to think deeply about these issues. Can you imagine yoking together two animals in the op- facing in opposite directions? The yoke would not work. Paul wants us to see that as Christians, we cannot be yoked together with spiritual opposites. To be yoked together here is to become someone's spiritual ally. Now, immediately, 
questions arise in our minds as to who the unbelievers are who are mentioned here. Like I said previously, I believe he's referring to the false teachers who have crept into the church to yoke the Corinthians to a false gospel, one that would lead them in the opposite direction, away from Christ and into sinful and defiling behaviors that would destroy their relationship with God. So Paul, out of love for his friends, is waging a war for their affections. Now, interestingly, part of Paul's rhetorical strategy here is to make the Corinthians answer these five questions, which all can be answered, obviously, negatively. He wants them to affirm the reality that their beliefs, their values, their practices must be in harmony with their identity as a new creation in Christ. Now, he follows this statement with a set of Old Testament scriptural proofs to explain what he means. In Christ, all the promises of God have been fulfilled, and all who participate in him by faith enjoy their reality. The believers in Corinth and here at London City Presbyterian Church possess these promises just as God has said. Second half of verse 16. And God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty. What is Paul's strategy? What is his battle plan? Well, he's told them of their new identity in Christ, for we are the temple of the living God. He's told them of their implication, the implications of this for their life. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, he shows them their place in God's story. Paul makes something abstract become a heart-gripping reality by showing them the beauty and the excellence of God's story and their place in it. Paul invites the Corinthians to see themselves in Christ as fulfilling the long-awaited return of God's people from exile. God's people Israel were taken into exile in Babylon because of their sin. They rejected their God. They did not live according to God's words, so he sent them away. But he made promises that one day they would be restored in a right relationship with him and that they would once again be in his presence. And even though Israel came back to the land of Israel... They lived lives spiritually distant from God. But the story doesn't end there, because Jesus came. Jesus came and experienced exile from heaven, and he satisfied the wrath of God in the place of all who would trust in him. 
for salvation. It is through his death and resurrection that we can be freed from our spiritual bondage, be set free from our spiritual exile from God. It is through him that we can have a relationship with God and know his presence. Paul is saying here that the promised restoration of God's people is taking place in the church. Paul is telling the Corinthian Christians that they have been restored in a right relationship with the living God, both as God's dwelling place and as God's family. Paul here is is waking them up to this precious reality, that they are in God's story. And he does this by using a compilation of several Old Testament texts. Text number one, God's people are God's temple. Verse 16, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. These words about God living and walking among his people are found both in the context of the exodus from Egypt in Leviticus chapter 26, as well as the promised second exodus from Babylon in Ezekiel chapter 37. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, today we are God's dwelling place, the place where God lives in fulfillment of this promise. By quoting these passages, he is giving them an awareness of their new identity in Christ as part of the ongoing story of redemption. They are God's home. So text number one, God's people are God's temple. Text number two, God's people are God's priests. Verse 17, Therefore, Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Here, Paul restates his first admonition not to be yoked together with spiritual opposites. God's people demonstrate their covenant identity by separating from impurity. This text is taken from Isaiah chapter 52, where the Lord promised to save his people from captivity In Babylon, he called on the priests to remove the temple vessels from Babylon and not to touch anything unclean. This is now applied to the church, who are God's temple and God's priesthood, and who must take seriously the moral implications of their new identity. Text number one, God's people are God's temple. Text number two, God's people are God's priests. Text number three, God's people are God's family. Second half of verse 17, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. Temple and priestly imagery gives way now to turn to royalty and family. There, is an, there was an Old Testament expectation rooted in this 2 Samuel 7 text that the restoration from exile would take place through God's kingly son in the line of David. Well, Jesus, as both God's son and, God's, and David's descendant, 
fulfilled this redemption by being exiled from heaven to live a perfect life among imperfect people and to die a fully satisfying sacrificial death in the place of all who would trust in him for salvation. Because of the restoration Jesus accomplished, the promise of being welcomed by God and adopted into his family now expands to include all who are united to God's Son by faith. God's people are his temple, his priests, his family, all in the context of the story of deliverance and restoration from exile. Through all of these Old Testament texts, Paul is appealing to the hearts of his hearers by telling them a story and showing them their place in it by virtue of their allegiance to Christ. There is power in a story. Professor Bittner has all of his first-year New Testament students read a book on the Gospels by Jonathan Pennington. And I loved the book, and there was this insightful quote in it that applies to what we're thinking about this morning, about story. He says this, Story communicates truth most comprehensively and transformatively. Abstract reflection and doctrine are necessary and good, but they do not have the same kind of effect and transformative power that a story does. Story communicates worldview because people's worldviews are made up of narratives. Author and pastor Tim Keller writes about a few of the cultural narratives that people believe. Just a few examples. The first one is the narrative of identity. The narrative which says we must discover our deepest desires and longings and then do all that we can to realize them, regardless of restraint or opposition. How prevalent is that narrative in our culture today? Or there's the narrative of materialism. The narrative that says acquiring more and more stuff makes us happier. Or perhaps the narrative of progress. The narrative that sees history as inevitably making progress at every stage. That every chapter of history is by definition superior than the one before. That whatever is new is automatically better. These are powerful stories that we and those around us can be drawn into, but which will inevitably shape the way we live. The way we see the world, our worldview, is made up of narratives. But a truer perspective of reality is made when we tap into the bigger story and see our place in it. Paul feeds the imagination of the Corinthians through narrative, through a story. He gives them a bigger story to inform and to give meaning to the story of their lives. 
This is a powerful strategy to affect the hearts of God's people. Paul then concludes with a summary statement in chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Since we have these promises, this hopefully causes us to recall a verse from earlier in this book, chapter 1, verse 20, which says that all the promises of God are yes in Christ. As Christians living here in London in 2016, our battle strategy should be the same as Paul's. To have an awareness of our new identity in Christ and to understand our place in the story of God's saving work in history. The new covenant promises are yes in Christ. We are in the final days of God's unfolding plan. Our lives are part of his story. We have these promises. But do we see this as crucial for the life of God's church? In the fight against sin and Satan and the false narratives which would lead us away from Christ? Do we use God's promises to motivate obedience and holiness so that we can look to the promiser? One of my favorite hymns says this, What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but a sight of peerless worth. Will we follow Paul and his strategy by using the promises of God to focus our attention on the promiser, the sight of peerless worth? God is saying to his people, you have these promises in my son. Now be holy. Do our lives demonstrate that we have these promises? Does my daily life tell my neighbors co-workers, family, friends, that I have a place in God's story? Now, of course, we, as followers of Christ, must first be gripped by these realities if we are to help others. The battle must be waged in our hearts if we are to take it out into the lives of our community. A personal example is my relationship with my, my siblings who do not walk with the Lord. It is difficult. I, I live uh, so many miles away, different time zones. It's hard to keep in contact. Do I give them opportunities to see that my life is gripped by the gospel? Or do they see the Pharisee? the one who joylessly finds all of the rules in God's book and attempts to work his way into God's favor? Do they see in my life the story that says we can work our way into God's favor? Or do they see someone 
whose life is part of God's story, who believes the promises of God in Christ, one who lives out his identity as both a child of God as well as God's dwelling place. So often, we are gripped by other stories, and our lives begin to be shaped by them, maybe because we've grown over-familiar or disinterested in God's story. It happens slowly and subtly. But as Christians, we are in this together. We all struggle with it, if we're honest. We're immersed in faithful Bible teaching week after week, but we can so easily become dull and lukewarm. If we recognize this reality in ourselves, what are we going to do about it? What will I do about it? Well, perhaps the best step is to tell a friend here. Tell a friend here and pray together that God would grip your heart again and wake you up to reality. Do you believe that God will answer that prayer? A prayer that honestly confesses weakness and trusts in God's strength? A prayer that expresses need and asks for his help? The Christian life is both a battle and a banquet. As we begin to see clearly our place in God's story, the Holy Spirit gives us an appetite for God. And we are able to fight the battle for our affections moment by moment, day by day, year by year. Now, I would like us to close with a moment of self-examination. If you are a Christian here and you regularly attend a Bible-teaching church, has your heart been stirred up as the gospel is faithfully preached and your identity in Christ and your place in God's story is shown to you week in and week out? Has your heart been stirred up this morning as we have been considering these important words from God's word? Or have these realities ceased to grip your heart, ceased to grip my heart? Are they a bit old hat, a bit over-familiar, a bit routine? Is your heart, is my heart open in a different direction? Will we focus our attention on the promiser, the one who has brought us into God's story? So let us have a few moments of silent reflection and ask God for his help.